This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Thank you for joining us for a Tuesday edition of our podcast. For those of you who listen to this podcast or have read my books, or for the two people who do both, listen to this podcast and read my books would be my mom and my wife, I guess. I am fascinated by the human mind. Why people do what they do, what drives or motivates or deters people. I love psychology, but I am not an expert. I was pretty good at reading a jury and knowing what evidence resonates with the jury in front of me at the time, but not an expert on a really serious topic. And we need an expert. And we're lucky because we have one today. Our guest today is a professor of psychology and neuroscience and director of the Social Connection and Health Lab at Brigham Young University. She's also the founding scientific chair and board member of the U.S. Foundation for Social Connection and the Global Initiative on Loneliness and Connection. She's also the lead scientific editor for U.S. Surgeon General's Advisory and Framework for a National Strategy. And for those of you who listen or watch our show, you know that I have had scores of guests on to talk about uh, this loneliness epidemic that we are going through, especially for young girls. Our guest today is Dr. Julianne holt Lundstad, and we are so thankful for you taking the time to join us. Welcome. Thank you. My pleasure. All right. I'm going to start by dispelling myths or or the words that we sometimes use, but not scientifically. So I'll, I'll start with this fact pattern. I personally enjoy being alone. I describe myself as a loner, which is you may find hard to believe. Somebody in politics is a loner or an introvert. Those are the words that I use. I never recall being lonely a day in my life. So the difference when people hear loneliness, the difference between that and an introvert or someone who prefers being alone, help us separate those terms. Yeah, no, this is a great place to start because there's a lot of uh, confusion because we often use terms interchangeably uh, and we often use the term loneliness even quite loosely. Uh, so first off, I think it's it's useful to distinguish between loneliness and isolation because those two are often used interchangeably. So Isolation can be objectively being alone, but it also can refer to having few relationships, so a small social network, uh, infrequent uh, social contact with others. 
Whereas loneliness is more feeling alone, and and that's more of a distressing feeling. And uh, scientists describe this as the discrepancy between one's desired level of connection and one's actual level of connection. So as you just described, you can be alone and not feel lonely. And conversely, you can also be surrounded by other people and still feel profoundly lonely. Um, And so... Uh, isolation can increase your risk for for feeling lonely, uh, but but they they are uh, different and but interestingly, both have been associated with risk. Now you bring up another really important uh, kind of common perception, and that is that that introverts perhaps prefer well prefer to be alone and don't get lonely and you know it's interesting because i remember all sorts of kind of jokes during the pandemic saying things like you know introverts have been training for this our whole lives (laughs) you know we need to reach out to our extroverted friends um but uh interestingly what the um what many studies are showing is that actually introverts um, are at increased risk for both isolation and loneliness. And so we shouldn't just assume that because someone is introverted that they don't get lonely. Um, so it's a little bit tricky, but but we any one of us can can feel lonely. In fact, it's it's a part of human nature to feel lonely, just like hunger or thirst. The, the issue really is more when it becomes prolonged, right? Uh, and, and so if you get stuck in that loneliness, that, that's when it really starts to uh, be linked to a lot of um, detrimental kinds of outcomes. All right. You've already educated me because I, I, I about an hour ago would have guessed if you had given me a test, I would have guessed that words like introvert and extrovert were just words we make up for team building exercises while we're taking some while we're taking a Myers Briggs test or something, but they're not really scientific terms. But it sounded like in your answer, you as a scientist use those terms too, and 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 that we're not crazy to kind of divide the world into introverts and extroverts. Yeah, uh, personality has been studied across psychology. And so introversion, extroversion are just two of many that we can um, possibly look at. And so I, I wouldn't necessarily say, you know, we we create this this division. And in fact, um, you know, there's there's uh, some degree to which people are more introverted or extroverted. It can be helpful, but only to a certain extent. I think one of the reasons I, I ask is for those of us who think we prefer being alone, we think it. maybe we are being naive about the consequences of what we think or what we maybe even feel or prefer. Maybe we should force ourselves to go for this word that didn't exist when I was in school connection. I mean, loneliness existed, but I never heard the word connection. I don't think and maybe within the last couple of years? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, we, we need connection. That's a fundamental human need. And and so not only is it linked to all these incredible um, benefits, which I can go into later, but but as you say, uh, it's, it's um, sometimes the things that are good for us may not necessarily be comfortable. 
Um, so sometimes getting exercise can feel uncomfortable, <laughs> um, but often. it's still good for us, right? Yeah, oftentimes <laughs> and sometimes it can. we can take great pleasure in things that are not healthy for us. <laughs> um, so, so we need to um, sometimes uh, get out of our, our comfort zones in order to be able to um, reap some of these benefits. And, and so just going by what we prefer or don't prefer uh, may not always be the best, the best guide in terms of what, what's healthy or unhealthy. No, that's a great example. I mean, the, the uh, people go run or they go to the gym when they don't feel like it because they think it's good for them. And I should probably go with my wife to social events, even though I would rather stay home and watch British crime dramas. So (laughs) I think I think you're right about that. Let me ask you, you mentioned the benefits of connection, loving pessimism the way I do. I'm tempted to start with the consequences of a lack of connection, the the deleterious part of it. But I'll let you pick. You want to start with the good news about being connected or just how unhealthy it is to be lonely or disconnected? Yeah. So I'll try and kind of balance both. (laughs) So... Uh, what we know is that the more socially connected you are, um, so having more and better quality relationships, um, connections with your community, et cetera, that that is associated with better kinds of outcomes. So that includes lower risk for um, mental health issues such as, as depression, uh, lower risk for um, developing dementia, uh, lower risk for um, cardiovascular disease and other kinds of chronic diseases. And it increases um, your survival or, or your, your, your lifespan um, as well. And so just to kind of put a few numbers to this, um, being more socially connected is associated with a 50% increase odds of survival. Um, and that is uh, across uh, mortality outcomes of all causes. Uh, and then when we look at the opposite end, so lacking connection, whether that's being isolated, lonely, lacking support, um, having poor quality relationships. So having poor relationships has increases your risk for developing depression, um, anxiety, uh, suicidality. It uh, increases your risk of um, mild cognitive impairments and dementia, um, including Alzheimer's disease. It uh, can increase your risk of cardiovascular disease uh, by 29%, stroke by 32%, uh, and it can increase your risk for earlier death, uh, again, from all causes, and in particularly uh, disease-related mortality. So some numbers that go along with that. Um, being isolated, or sorry, being lonely is associated with an increased risk of earlier death by uh, 29% or sorry, 26% uh, isolation by 29% and and living alone by 32%. Uh, So these are some, you know, pretty uh, important kinds of outcomes. Uh, 
but there are, and these are more long-term outcomes, but there are even short-term outcomes. Like it uh, being more socially connected actually uh, reduces your susceptibility to developing a cold or, or, or flu. Um, and, uh, and conversely being isolated or lonely um, can, can make you more susceptible uh, to, to viruses. Uh, we've also seen that people who are more socially connected are also more likely to thrive in other kinds of ways. Uh, so when it comes to safety, things like natural disasters, whether it be a flood or a fire, that often people who know their neighbors are more likely to survive these kinds of events um, and, and are more likely to get support and be more resilient in recovering from these kinds of events. So some kinds of education outcomes are, are stronger as well. So we see that um, not only individuals, but communities um, are more likely to thrive the more, uh, more connected they are. More of our conversation with Dr. Julianne Holt-Lundstad right after this. Listen to the all-new Brett Bear podcast featuring Common Ground, in-depth talks with lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle, along with all your Brett Bear favorites like his all-star panel and much more. Available now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, I'm sitting here thinking of, I guess when I was in college, my connection back home was to handwrite a letter. Maybe possibly my father would take it collect call from me, but doubtful based on my report card the previous semester. He probably wouldn't do that. So there's so many more options now for connection or connectivity. How in the world can there be a connection, lack of connection epidemic when we seem to be, from a technology standpoint, more connected than ever? Yeah, this is, I think, an important question that we're all trying to grapple with because uh, presumably we have more opportunities to connect and yet we're seeing these trends that suggest we're, we're less connected and, and why is that? And um, I mean, I can share with you some of the, the trends that we are seeing that, that suggest that we are, are less connected. So let me, let me maybe start with a few. Um, so if you look at, for instance, uh, there was some data that was recently published by the American Time Use Survey, and it looks at how Americans have been spending their time over the past two decades, so starting in 2003. And what you see is that time spent alone has been increasing. Time spent with family, both uh, household family and non-household family, has been decreasing. Time spent with friends have been decreasing. Time spent in community and companionship also decreasing. And so we think about, okay, well, what, what might be accounting for these trends? And so I think the obvious first one is people will say, well, the pandemic, right? Well, yes, we saw some increases there, but it started before that. So then we think, well, okay, um, it's gotta be social media. Uh, and, you know, some of the estimates around that, um, you know, around the time that smartphones tended to be um, uh, the norm, that, that the majority of Americans had smartphones and, and the time in which uh, the majority of people became on social media. And yes, we see an increase around that time, but it didn't start there. <laughs> And so it starts to one, you know, we start to think, well, what other factors might be? And it's not that those aren't important because they are, 
But these trends began before that. And, and in fact, we see some uh, studies that look at things like social capital that have also um, began even prior to the, you know, uh, even further back than 2003, you know, looking back further decades. And so it, it may be a culmination of many factors that are, are leading to the, these issues. But, um, you know, I think it, it is uh, an important question because if we don't understand why, then it makes it really hard for us to um, come up with, with appropriate kinds of solutions. Well, I'm going to show my background as a homicide prosecutor and not as a scientist. But the reality is we would be hard pressed to think of a single gathering place that has not been victimized by a, a mass shooting. And I wonder whether that plays a part in people's minds, that they feel safer at home and therefore they're less likely I mean, there have been mass shootings at theaters and sporting events and churches and schools. And I don't know. I mean, again, I'm not a psychologist, but if our number one desire is to stay alive, stay well, I just wonder if subliminally maybe a fear of something is what keeps us home. But like I said, I'm not a I am not a scientist. Um, you know, it's it's interesting you suggest that because it might be that, you know, with all decisions as humans, you know, comes down to to what is what is, um, you know, a threat versus what is an opportunity, you know, these risk opportunity kinds of of um, decision making. And so it might be that not only are there real kinds of risks like that, but there are additional kinds of risks like risks of rejection, um, but then also the kinds of opportunities. And we might be now so comfortable where we're getting certain kinds of opportunities where, well, gosh, I can get my entertainment at home now. So right. why, why should I leave the house? I, I can have my food delivered. So why should I go out into my community and go to the grocery store? Yeah, there are many conveniences that we've now built into our lives, that it may feel as though it's easier and safer to stay at home. Does connection have to be in person? Like you and I both flipped on the video. You could, if you want to do, and you've probably been tempted to flip off the video where it's just audio. That's a form of connection, but it's less than video. Does it have to be in person for it to be fully effective? Well, we're still trying to understand the equivalencies. And so, of course, our our connections can provide many kinds of, of benefits and, and fulfill different kinds of needs and goals. And so it may be appropriate for certain kinds of things um, and less so for others. And so for this purpose, it probably would have been really hard for us to arrange to meet in person. And, and so it may not have happened otherwise. And so uh, being able to make connections across geographic distances can be a, a really useful thing to do. But we also note that there have been times where uh, I know there are many colleagues that I got to know quite well over over um, uh, you know the, these video tools, and then when we met in person, it was so incredible. <laughs> um, and, and there was something clearly missing uh, about that, and and so I think uh, it, it can be a tool that can be helpful, but it may not necessarily replace or be equivalent to in person contact. 
All right, I'm going back uh, probably close, almost 40 years now. I call them touch studies that children who were held do better than children who were not. Um, and I assume that there is some part of the human condition that does like to touch, whether that's a handshake or a hug or a pat on the back, none of which is possible if you are on Zoom or 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 WebEx or something. You have to be in person. Is that touch desire or need real? And I guess it that can't be met unless you're in person. Yeah, so there are um, many studies that have looked at the importance of human touch. You you bring up one of them uh, around uh, studies that have looked at um, infants and small children and custodial care that lacked human contact. They had failed to thrive, um, and and in some cases even even. Um, uh, died as a result. Uh, this, you know, of course, led to many changes in, in how we do that. But there are other kinds of studies that have looked at the importance of touch, whether that's, you know, holding hands, sitting, um, you know, closely snuggled up. Uh, but touch can be uh, really important. And uh, in fact, in my, some of my own studies, we looked at the role of touch on the neuropeptide oxytocin. Uh, and not to be confused with Oxycontin, <laughs> um, oxytocin is is a neuropeptide. Um, some people have called it the 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 love hormone or the bonding hormone. Um, it's a little bit more complex than that, but but um, in part it's because it's been implicated in social bonding. So, for instance, when you um, block the receptors for oxytocin in animals, they will completely neglect their young. And when you uh, uh, stimulate them with oxytocin, they will often care for young that, that are not their own offspring. And, and so it seems to be associated um, with, with social bonding, but it's also been linked to things like stress regulation, pain regulation. And so part of this physical touch not only is important in social bonding, but can influence how we navigate our, our world and, and um, ultimately how it can potentially be a, a mediator to how these, these might relate to biological uh, pathways that ultimately uh, can, can influence health outcomes too. We'll be right back with more of the Trey Gowdy podcast. All right. I really do not want to turn you from science into self-help. So if this sounds like a self-help question, then help me rephrase it into more okay. of a scientific okay. one. But if someone begins to see the signs of lack of connection or loneliness in themselves, which may be tough, or see it in someone else they care about, is it just as simple as, you know, get out more, join a group, join a bridge club? I don't have a PhD and I don't need one to come up with that. So there's got to be more to it. So what, 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 what am I missing if someone we care about were worried about a lack of connection in their lives? Well, I think it's all, um, first off, it's, it's important to understand why, right? Because uh, if we understand the underlying causes of why they may be isolated or lonely, uh, this can help us find a, a solution that might be more responsive to their needs. So um, for some, if, uh, 
if it was because they have had some kind of change, whether it's a change in a job or a move, and, and it's disrupted their their social network, and and maybe they don't have friends or family nearby anymore to connect with, that might mean making new friends. And so in that case, joining groups um, might be a good way to uh, to to start building relationships. And there is a large literature on on how group membership can uh, be associated with, with better kinds of outcomes. But if it's some other underlying cause, such as um, an underlying health issue, or um, so for instance, uh, among older adults, um, untreated hearing loss can be a contributor to uh, isolation and loneliness. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm sure you can imagine if, if you're having a hard time hearing the conversation, you're likely to disengage and, and perhaps uh, withdraw a, or not say anything out of embarrassment. Uh, and, and so that the the solution in that case might be very different than the person who who um, just uh, moved, right? And so really trying to understand what that might be, can start you down the path of, of what might be the solution. There are several types of, of interventions that have been studied, uh, and most of them have some support um, for their effectiveness, uh, but they're not huge, and in part because one solution may not be appropriate for everybody. Um, and we really need to make sure we're, we're responsive and matching their needs with, with what we're providing or, or offering or, or even just assisting them with. <laughs> Doc, I would literally rather write my own obituary than talk about politics. So I am not <laughs> going to talk about politics with you beyond stating the obvious that we live in divisive times. And if I were searching for an antonym for connectivity, it would be divisiveness. <laughs> it probably would not be the right antonym, but they, this, they, they seem opposite to me, that the more divided you feel, the less connected you feel. I wonder, I mean, I mentioned mass shootings, not in a political way, but in a practical way. I wonder if, if a culture of divisiveness, a culture of Fear or anger also contributes to a lack of willingness to connect. I, I mean, I've got friends that would never vote for me. And I say that as a source of pride. I mean, to me, it is fantastic that we did not let that interfere with our friendship. They shouldn't vote for me. I, I, I have a different view of government. They were right not to vote for me. But that's rare. Usually, if we don't agree with someone politically, we kind of cut off the connection. Or have I lost my mind? No, it's it's certainly um, you know a, a growing concern, and it, it's hard to know what the you know which is the chicken and which is the egg, <laughs> in the sense of uh, the more isolated we feel from others, um, the more we start to kind of view the world in us versus them, um, which can lead to these kinds of of divisions. Um, but the more we're divided and feel like we are perhaps unheard or not accepted or valued, um, the more isolated we feel. <laughs> and so it, it can be this, this um, cyclical process. Uh, but 
Um, certainly, uh, the the more we uh, isolate ourselves, um, it, it can be easier to not engage with other people. Like you said, you know, cut off people who think differently than us, and um, and fail to see our, our common humanity and the things that we do agree on and the things that we do have in common. Which usually so far outnumber the things that you do not agree on, but we just for some reason that another day you'll have to explain to me why we start with the things that like divide us and don't start. <laughs> we don't do it on airplanes. I mean, we don't sit there and like argue on airplanes with whoever's sitting beside us. We try to find something we have in common. Usually it is my desire not to talk. That is what we have in common is I don't want to talk on the airplane. What have I not asked you that I should have, or what should we know about loneliness and a lack of connection that most people do not? I mean, I don't know if this is necessarily a, a something that people don't know, but I think you know if if we're going to have some kind of parting, um, uh, perhaps note, is that um, you know when you ask me of what what can someone do, uh, this past uh, well I, I did a, a study where we looked at it, we called it the kind challenge and we asked neighbor or individuals to. Um, do small acts of kindness for their neighbors over the course of um, four weeks. And so some were randomly assigned to do these and some um, just, you know, go about their business. And what we found was that those who did these small acts of kindness for their neighbors were um, uh, more likely to, to um, were report less loneliness. And um, so I offer this because it's something that literally anyone can do. It's free. You don't need any training. And not only, you know, also, we only found these benefits for the people who um, did the acts of kindness. We didn't even measure the people um, who received the acts of kindness, and presumably they benefited too. But what what this uh, suggests is that this is something small that any one of us can do, and that that one way we can kind of get out of this is is by serving others, by helping others. Um, and, you know, it's kind of like, uh, at least, you know, what I've been taught since I was a child, and, and that is that, you know, some of the best ways to help ourselves is to help others. Yeah, someone famous, I can't remember who, said it was more blessed to give than to receive. And actually, I think it was Tolstoy who said the essence of life is human service, service to others. So we spend all this time like trying to figure out how we can improve ourselves when, as you note, it might be as simple as going and getting the newspaper and walking it closer to your neighbor's front porch so they don't have to walk as far. I hope, by the way, I hope my neighbors are listening to this and they begin <laughs> to do a, a series of small acts of kindness for me. That is great advice. I mean, there's not a soul in the world who can't I mean, look, it is simple kind of stuff. Like, if I had a nickel for every time I got through the drive-through and someone in front of me had paid for it, I, I don't know them, didn't leave their name. But you go to restaurants and you go to check out, and I mean, I still live in the hometown I grew up in, so someone has already paid for it. It leaves like an incredible impression on you when people do nice things for you. So that's the perfect thing that and that's not 
like super complicated. If people want to know more about this, learn more about this, I mean, I don't pretend that we would understand your academic studies or research, but do you write in like a way that normal people could also like follow it? Like I've read the Surgeon General stuff. I, I followed that. Yeah, so um, I, I was the lead scientific editor on that. Um, so there's that you can read. Um, I have some resources on my website, which is uh, julianneholtlunstad.com. Um, I also have uh, content on my academic um, university website, which which might be more academic. Um, but there's there's a lot of resources that are are out there for the public. The, um, the National Academies um, has, has issued a, a few different reports on this uh, that one um, that I've participated in. One uh, is a report on social isolation and loneliness among older adults. Um, and then the other one is on um, social media and adolescent health. And then there are um, additional kinds of, of sources uh, that y you can find online. Um, the CDC now has a website on social connectedness. Um, and so you can find some more public facing kinds of information there as well. I keep saying last question and then I keep like breaking, <laughs> breaking my word, but something just entered my head. You mentioned older people and I think that, you know, you lose a spouse, you, you, you your children move away. That one is awful, but I think people maybe see that one coming sometimes. When I see a loneliness epidemic among young girls and women, that is what makes me think what is going on. So is epidemic the right word? Is that is are we really seeing like depression and suicidal ideation among young girls and young women? So um, we're seeing uh, depression and and uh, and suicidality across both both genders, and and we do see in many, many studies that uh, while certainly anyone at any age and any gender can can feel lonely, uh, there, there does seem to be the highest prevalence in um, youth. So adolescents and, and young adults. Um, so for example, uh, one study showed that loneliness peaks at age 19. Uh, according to um, some data here, I, I live in Utah, um, the peak age is in 10th grade um, in, in, among Utahns. So um, we are seeing the, this really becoming um, concerning for, for young people. Whether or not it is considered an epidemic um, is somewhat up for debate. Um, and that's because different people have different definitions of what an epidemic might mean. Um, but if we use it in a way that would signify something that has severe consequences and, um, and, and where there's some degree of urgency, so uh, some trends, increasing trends of impact or, or a large impact on society, uh, what our current evidence suggests is that uh, a large portion of, of the population, and, and when I say large portion, um, I should say significant portion, uh, the, the prevalence rates can range um, depending on whether you're looking at moderate and severe levels of loneliness or just the severe levels of loneliness, but they range anywhere from about 
20% to over half of the population reporting uh, loneliness. And so what that suggests is that this is having a sizable impact on, on the population and the consequences are, are severe. And so what that would suggest is it's something that we should be taking seriously. So whether you call it a crisis, an epidemic, uh, um, <laughs> an urgent issue, uh, uh, it, it's, it's serious nonetheless. And it's something that we, we certainly um, should not ignore. Well, thank you for, number one, spending a lot of your professional career researching it. So that way people have the numbers and you're right. I mean, whether what word you use is not good, whether it's a crisis or an epidemic or, you know, or the slew of despond, it, it ain't good. <laughs> Uh, so thank you for that. Thank you for articulating it in a way that a lawyer could understand and other folks on our that listen to our podcast. It is, it is heartbreaking to me as someone who's never felt it to think that anybody I used to go to school and I and I would tell the kids when I was the D.A., that there's no reason anyone in your cafeteria should be sitting alone. That was my way of trying to guilt them into not letting kids sit by themselves. Who knows? Maybe there's a little Trey Gowdy in there that wanted to be by himself. I don't know that, but it is heartbreaking to think of people suffering from loneliness. So thank you for helping us understand it and also giving us ideas on how to like make it better. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you for for having me, and and um, and I guess I would just part with saying, um, you know, we should all take a moment to really, you know, prioritize our relationships and our our own lives because each one of us can take steps today to um, not only help ourselves but to help others. Amen. Thank you. And um, I reserve the right to call on you again, but I won't go through my uh, lack of ability to pass statistics and testing. <laughs> I can barely pronounce statistics. I certainly couldn't have passed it, but I'll skip that. I'm sure you could have if you'd actually taken it. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. We'll never, we will never know. I love to have normal psychology. That was my favorite, but uh, but you need that a lot more if you're a homicide prosecutor than you do, you know, probably early childhood development. That that course didn't help me a whole lot. But you have. So thank you for joining us and I look forward to our next time. Thank you. Appreciate yes, it. Ma'am. And thank you all for joining us on a Tuesday with Trey. Listen ad free with a Fox News podcast plus subscription on Apple Podcasts and Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad free on the Amazon Music app. Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Janice Dean, Fox News Senior Meteorologist. Be sure to subscribe to the Janice Dean Podcast at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to spread the sunshine.